Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1389 entitled Try Topping Sarah. Our podcast title is Across the Podmos. I am Rob Jan, Jan Solo today, our co-host Megan McHugh is otherwise engaged for today. Now, thank you to the Comedy Couch for their preceding show. Now, if you are following Doctor Who, you will know that season 13 has been followed up by three specials. And we got the first as a New Year's Day treat earlier this year. And today's drop is the Easter special, Legend of the Sea Devils. If you're listening in Australia, you can stream that right now on iView, the ABC's in-house platform. You'll be able to watch it free to air tonight on ABC TV at 7.30. Kind of traditional there. (laughs) Well, you know, new traditional at least. Uh, These free specials are the final episodes to feature Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor, along with her companions Mandip Gill as Yaz and John Bishop as Dan. And the third special will be broadcast later this year as part of the BBC's Centenary Celebrations. Now, in Whovian law, both the Sea Devils in this special and their land-based Cousins, the awkwardly named Silurians, are a sentient Saurian race that inhabited and dominated Earth in the Doctor Who universe multiple millions of years before mankind evolved from apes. Now, the sentient reptiles were forced into underground or space-based hibernation aboard ships as the result of a planetary catastrophe, which is separate to that which wiped out the dinosaurs in Earth Prime in our world. The thawed survivors have subsequently been the subject of multiple Doctor Who adventures ever since on screen and the printed page and so on. Anywho, since dinosaurs are freshly on my brain, when have they ever actually gone away from it? I'm also thinking of those Saurian crude space arcs as well. So dinosaurs in space... What, dinosaurs on a spaceship? Well, so today's David Bowie link will riff off both dinosaurs and space. Since there is a Stellosaurus, which means star lizard, and that was a cetrosaurine ceratopsid dinosaur that lived in Montana during the late Cretaceous era, and it was named after that star man David Bowie and also the song, in honour of its spiky head ornamentation. And it's a very spectacular sort of personality, I would imagine, as well. Well, It might have been a bit mopey or a bit uh, gothy or who knows. (laughs) But who does indeed know for the Stellasaurus? So we will give you a bit of a track here from Return to Space, which is... um, 
a television series and, well, actually a documentary film, catch up with it on Netflix, directed by Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai Vasahali. Now, that was actually uh, a sort of a documentary about Elon Musk's and SpaceX's engineers' two-decade mission to get astronauts into space on a commercial level. And that came out in 2022. So riffing off that also, we also know that Elon Musk's own Tesla Roadster was used as a test article, a dummy payload, back in 2018 about aboard a Falcon Heavy rocket test flight. And it's now out there floating around. And they nicknamed the, the mannequin that was put into the driver's seat uh, Starman after the Bowie song. Although the actual song that they looped on the... Uh, car sound system was Space Oddity. Whoa, that's such a long <laughs> winded <laughs> segue for actually a fairly short track, which is Starman, a cover version by Sharon Van Etten from the Return to Space, a soundtrack album. Good day, this is Yanto Jones. You've reached Torchwood, Melbourne on 3 FM. Do not leave a message after the tone because we already know who you are. Subscribe, donate, regenerate. Here's Rob Jan with Zero G talking about, well, all sorts of things today. We just had a little blurt about the Doctor Who special that's just dropped on ABC's iView and will be on broadcast free to air tonight at 7.30 on the auntie and we just played a track called starman a cover of the bowie classic sharon van etten who's a new jersey born now los angeles based american singer songwriter who also appeared in both seasons of the oa playing uh, one of the abductees rachel i think which is actually one of those parallel universe shows which is kind of apt when you consider what we're going to be talking about Next, <laughs> so many things to cover in the genre today. Now, so okay, I'm thinking about dinosaurs not far from my mind and not far from where I sit at the moment, actually. So I had a few hours to kill, so I went off to see Horridus at the Melbourne Museum. Sounds like a Harry Potter sort of thing, really, when you think about it. Uh, to check out the exhibition of our new, <laughs> well, it's 67 million years old, not entirely new, Triceratops fossil. Now, you will know that Triceratops means three-horned face, and this is indeed the dino that has the big thrill around its neck and those triple, not R's, but... Horns. And we know that these magnificent creatures were around about extant at the same time as sort of Tyrannosaurus dinosaurs. So it's quite probable that the two were not best buddies. And it's been a trope in science fiction and fantasy that Triceratops and T Rex would be versus characters in all sorts of fictional contexts, including film and TV, paintings and, of course, model-making, dioramas. It's like, let's pit the T-Rex against the Triceratops. Anyway, this 
fossil now at the museum has 260 or over that, I think, uh, bones in its fossil. And it's articulated quite brilliantly in terms of the setup. We'll get to that in a minute. It's nicknamed Horridus after its scientific name, Horridus triceratops. Uh, it, the triceratops became extinct in the late Cretaceous, and that's actually half a million years before the dinosaur killer asteroid impacted. Uh, this one came out of the rich Montana fossil deposits. It died near a river and was quickly covered by silt before too many scavengers could disturb its bones. It's, at least that's the theory. Uh, the process of fossilization thereby occurred. Bone and sometimes tissues gradually replaced by minerals, making a kind of a rock cast of the skeleton. Not unlike what we actually do when we pour cement into the... The, uh, the dust moulds in um, Pompeii and Herculaneum. It was discovered in 2014 by commercial paleontologist Craig Vista, one of the most complete skeletons of the Triceratops that's ever been found, and I think it may be the most complete dinosaur skeleton that's now in, the, in, in any Australian museum. Could be wrong there. And... It's nearly 85% complete and it's about 2.5 metres tall, about 7 metres long. It weighs 1,000 kilograms and it's all there. So uh, you get into the, um, into the environment. It's a centrepiece of a multi-level chamber and it sort of like owns the space as it looms out of the dark. But for a creature that's so fearsomely armed, I, I don't feel threatened by this as, a, as an object. It doesn't, because I mean, you know, I know it's a herbivore. On the other hand, it's a herbivore the size of a minivan or indeed like a quarter of a tram, basically. So yeah, if there were enough of them together, and it's quite possible that they travel in herds, you can imagine like a, a dinosaur stampede and how... How hellacious that would be. So I think it's a, an amazing piece to have there. Now, one of the other things about it is that uh, they're using environmental sound effects to help evoke its life and place it in context, as so do the enthusiastic hoots and squeals of human young and indeed some of us older types as we marvel at its humongous body so you can view it from different aspects at different heights going through the the chamber and at each different level you've got little interactive displays and and video screens that can show you what it might have been doing uh, the process of fossilization uh, even one which relates the dinosaurs to birds you know quite well known by now especially to zero g listeners i should imagine and these are really makes it a, I, I feel like a, a world class <coughs> dinosaur display. All right, speaking of dinosaur stampedes, let's have a track here that's called Dinosaur Stampede. Now, it's more about, uh, I feel this one's more about sort of carnivorous dinosaurs than herbivores, but. Maybe if you think like that, uh, I'm trying to think when was the last dinosaur stampede, I saw one, a great one. Uh, oh, the one in King Kong. That's the Peter Jackson one. And this is by Professor Flint from Dinosaurs Down Under.
Hi, this is Matthew Riley, creator of the Scarecrow and Jack West Jr. series. Welcome aboard the Zero G Heli Carrier on 3RRR FM. Semper Sci Fi. <laughs> Having a little stampede there with the dinosaur stampede. Professor Flint from Dinosaurs Down Under. Oh, kind of cute, that one. We are talking about Horridus, or Horridus, the dinosaur skeleton triceratops, or the fossil, I should say, down at the Melbourne Museum, not that far away from where I sit now, in the centre of the anthropogenic era, <laughs> Triple R FM. Now, you can access the Triceratops chamber via the dinosaur walk through the museum. So I thought this was actually quite a good thing to be able to do because it means you've got a, 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 well, a bony sort of context for the Triceratops. And, yeah, it is the feature of the collection from my point of view and obviously from theirs. It's an on-running exhibition, so it's not uh, going to whip in and out as some do. But... As you walk through that dinosaur section, you can see all sorts of things in there that I really, really love, like a, a Tarbosaurus. And you know I'm just having fun just saying these words. And that's very much like a T-Rex, so it's got all the big teeth and the powerful jaws and so on, but uh, it's a little bit different. So you can imagine that maybe interacting with a Triceratops, though just off the top of my head I can't tell you if they were contemporary. There's also a a Dinonychus, which is a very fast-moving dinosaur, bipedal. So that's more like a, Verossal, a velociraptor in many respects. And, yeah, you look down and you can see the, the terrible claws on its feet. A little bit um, karate-ish, really, when you think about it. So we'll get back to that in a second. Uh, the... Other dinosaurs there that I thought stood out for me was the, oh, I'm going to mess this one up, the Marmontiosaurus, and that's a, a really large four-legged herbivore. And some of these ones, you know, they're absolutely huge. I mean, you know, that's what you think when you think of dinosaurs, although there are quite a few little fellows there. One that's not so small was the Matabatasaurus, which is one that... Um, has gotten quite a bit of press in an Australian context. I also particularly like one of my favourite is the uh, Talarurus. And this is um, one of those armoured dinosaurs. Like uh, It's like a little tank, actually, and it's got a bony club on the end of its tail, which is waving above you as you walk through. So you get a really good look at it and think, I don't think I'd like to be smacked with that. Of course, overhead, if you look up, uh, you will see not only the heads of some of the larger dinosaurs as they stretch up to the second level, but things like the pterodon, which is um, a pterosaur. So it's one of those ones that basically looks like a massive skin-covered glider. And alongside of these, no, not in the air, uh, the megafauna as well. That's the giant mammals and marsupials. There's a Diprotodon opatanum, and that's a giant marsupial. So the, imagine the biggest wombat that you could possibly imagine, <laughs> and you'll see it there. Now, if you go to the Melbourne Museum at 11 Nicholson Street in Carlton, you will be also required to do a... 
uh, show proof of your COVID-19 vaccination status, whether you use it on a digital platform or else using your digits to flourish a paper copy of that too, just so that you know when you rock up. You can also purchase the tickets there to get into the museum, uh, $15 for adults, seniors 10, concession 2 is, that's concession class 2, free. And uh, other ones like children and museum members who are adults and so on, well, you know, they're all on the free list as well. It's not a bad idea to book for the exhibition because there's only a certain amount of people allowed into the chamber at once, so you can do that too. All of that can happen online. Where you can also find, and I was quite taken by this, a 3D um, virtual sort of look around of the skeleton so you can interact with it on that level and manipulate it so you can get uh, a look at it from aspects that you couldn't actually do in the museum, like from directly underneath, because, you know, they frown upon you getting over the railing and doing that sort of thing. So, yeah, I had a great time looking at this, just sitting there and standing there in the presence of this mighty beast. And we don't know whether it was male or female, because that's actually rather difficult to decide from a fossil, in this case at least. And I thought, wow, I'm, I'm in the presence of something 67 million years old. And not only does that make me feel like a, a springing dinosaur myself, but it's just carrying a weight of history with it, as well as the fact that you realise that this thing was like, you know, three, three metres underground. And you can see the compression marks on the skeleton from being crushed by the weight of Earth over all those millennium. And you look at it and you think... <sighs> I'm I'm kind of glad that it's been set free now. It's like uh, a little bit like, um, I don't know, Michelangelo sculpting something or setting free a form from a lump of marble. I don't know. There's just something about it that sent shivers up my spine. Well, maybe I should have the kind of spine that uh, Stegosaurus had and then maybe help regulate the uh, the heat in my body. And that's an interesting thing too. Of course, this fossil is there and it can be studied by paleontologists as well as the general public. And you sort of wonder, what were those three horns on the dinosaur for? Other um, ceratopsians had varying numbers of horns as well. Uh, the Stellosaurus we talked about before, the David Bowie-named one, that only had one, although it had uh, quite a bony frill as well around it. You know, there's all sorts of ideas about that. I mean, obviously we look at it and we think like rhinoceros or or uh, a buffalo or a, a, a bull or something like that. But, you know, there could be many other things for it too. I mean, yeah, maybe it was used to fight predators like Tyrannosaurus. And, yeah, there is some evidence of, of that in some damage to the fossil bones. You can do forensics upon that. Uh, it, they also could have been, I thought, quite useful for digging up um, uh, small plants and so on that, that the, uh, the herbivores dined on and maybe knocking down the occasional tree to get a juicy foliage. Uh, something I, I, I thought of just as I was musing about it was this sort of thing would quite make quite a loud noise if you knocked it against things, against trees and rocks and maybe even the ground. So if they did travel in herds, maybe they could have used it to sort of signal to each other, not in a particularly sentient way because they've got tiny little brains. In fact, two tiny little brains, one running their, their nether sections and one up in the head. But 
I'm just wondering if they, you could have heard the sounds of horns knocking against each other back in the in these ancient periods and carrying for long distances. It's like, you know, beating out drum beats. And maybe they were even like drummers. <laughs> I don't know. Another possible use for the uh, the thrill part of the um, the bony carapace at their uh, at their front end would possibly for heat regulation as we're theorising about uh, with the Stegosaurus and maybe although this is more discredited nowadays as attachment points for the large muscles that it must have taken to lift these massive heads and perhaps make them uh, fight against predators and so on and against each other too of course there's a a courtship aspect and a ritual display that might also have been involved sort of like uh, mooses going head to head you know we, there's a lot of stuff we don't know about them and hopefully exhibitions like this will help push that forward too. Now, the Triceratops is a favourite creature in fiction. It's used all the time and, of course, some of the early creations, early on when they just discovered this, they started doing paintings of them, Triceratops versus T-Rex. And it has echoed on not only throughout uh, history but throughout fictional narratives in comic books like Dinosaurs for Hire, uh, Hire, Tom Mason series back in the 80s where you had uh, a bunch of dinosaurs literally doing that. It's sort of like a detective sort of agency. And there was a, a Triceratops in that called Lorenzo. And if I remember correctly, you'll find in the... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle universe, the Triceraton Commandos from a, a parallel world, I believe. So they're also being used in um, ooh, Extinct, that's X-T-N-C-T, uh, Paul Cornell and Disraeli's comic book in the, ooh, when was that? Judge Dredd magazine, that's right. And so this was all set in the future and... Those nasty humans were using genetically engineered animals as a, a sort of a, a commando um, uh, aspect to fight wars and do all sorts of horrible things. And they always tend to make um, <coughs> give the characters who are Triceratops some sort of name that bounces off their, their uh, species name, like Trike in Extinct. Or if you remember Sarah in the long-running Land Before Time animated series, she was one of the main characters in that, mostly a, a sort of a juvenile in uh, that particular thing. And do you remember that there was a Triceratops in Jurassic Park, a one that was sick from eating plants that it shouldn't have done? And that was the uh, the one that produced the enormous pile of dung that one of the characters put their hand into to diagnose the plant-based illness. And, of course, we have in so many of those Power Ranger... <laughs> <laughs> avatars, various Triceratops characters. Triceratops, known also as Shelby in Power Rangers Dino Supercharge. There was a Dino Sorcerer in that particular series. And Walking with Dinosaurs, the BBC documentary, of course, featured Triceratops at one stage. So many movies, books and museum displays featuring these, even if they don't actually have the necessarily have the context for Triceratops versus T-Rex, if you put two of them on display, you are going to put two of them near each other just, just for that uh, exciting contrast. And, of course, there have been those fights featured in various movies, though less many than you might think. 
Um, I was going through a, a list of them, you know, and it's like all those sort of one million years BC and when dinosaurs ruled the earth and so on. But, you know, what, what can you say when you're dealing with dinosaurs? Well, perhaps we could just put it into song and have a We Sing with an artist called that from an album called We Sing <laughs> Dinosaurs. And the track is called Triceratops. Hello, this is Wendy Padbury. I played Zoe Herriot on Doctor Who and Sue Craig on Free Wheelers. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple RFM. Zero G? Well, I'm quite sure that doesn't add up. Yeah, but it does. It does. You know it does. And we had a little track there called Triceratops from We Sing Dinosaurs by the same artist. I think that's so cute. <laughs> There's a lot of kids' songs about dinosaurs, not surprisingly. I mean, you know, you would expect that. And your expectations are met in spades. Now, I want to just roll over into another track now here. And this is by the great Ellen Silvestri, who's done so much for the science fiction and fantasy genres. And this is from, actually, the, uh, the soundtrack for Cosmos, space-time odyssey and we will get together with all our sagacity or saganacity here to celebrate the many different planes aspects parallel dimensions realities and mirrorverses of the multiverse which is what the track is called this is Annie Lee. And I'm Morn Kransky of the Kransky Sisters. And you're listening to Zero G on 3 FM. Lock up your meat safe and beware of the machine with the claw. Yeah, indeed. Go off with Alan Silvestri into the multiplicity of the multiverse from Cosmos, a space-time odyssey. Why did I play that? Well, yes, I am talking about the multiverse today across all of my many different doppelgangers, avatars and duplicates in those parallel realities and alternate worlds. All right, so that is something that has been inspired by so many different (laughs) television shows and movies. The Mirrorverse, where everything is opposite and bad is good and so on. Concept that's been pushed across in Star Trek, Red Dwarf, Lost in Space, recently Marvel's What If animated series. So many alternate timelines, counterfactuals, as they are called in the literary genre, where often uh, World War II is won by the evil Axis or the US Civil War gets won by the even equally awful Confederacy and In some, Rome never fell. You know, these are concepts we've seen before in sliders and fringe. And, of course, Parallax, I think, is one of the shows that I can remember most vividly. And is it the second season of Rick and Morty? I can't remember. There's too many of them. There's so many different fractured, sundered realities. And, of course, it is flavour of the moment in Spider-Man territory, No Way Home, which was itself sort of riffing off the animated film Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And, of course, we saw it explored thoroughly in the series Loki and that aforementioned Marvel animated series What If? 
as well as in Avengers Endgame. And, of course, Avengers Endgame, directed by the Russo brothers, who are the producers of the movie, which I am now landing upon, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which has as much moxie as one of my favourite movies, Kung Fu Hustle. It's an American science fiction movie. It's written and directed by Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, who are known as the Daniels, just as the uh, the Russo brothers are that particular gestalt entity. Uh, they are both directors and writers. Started out in uh, doing uh, directing music videos and have done a few films since then, including 2016's macabrely hilarious Swiss Army Man. Speaking of... This is a movie that has some aspects of it that are in sick, good-humoured taste. So now we come to Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which I am going to get wrong in its title at least once today. They also did um, uh, some episodes of a television show called, uh, at least one, um, Aquafina is Nora from Queens, and a couple of uh, genre-related ones of NTSF. So, you know, they do have a, a bit of a, a form with this kind of thing, as does the production company, US Indie Film A24, who we know for working on Ex Machina, Room, The Witch, and on telly uh, Moonbase 8 and Euphoria. Well, stay calm. Your brain is under an incredible amount of strain as we delve into the multiplicity of mayhemic madness that is everything, everywhere, all at once. Now, there's a great soundtrack for this film, and I think we'll literally kick it off with the opera fight, which features Surya and Y Music, and the band is Son Lux, who've done all of the tracks for the film E.E.A., A-O. <laughs> All right, so the opera fight from that. So if you imagine a fair bit of ass booting going on in this, you would not be wrong. This is Cecilia Dart Thornton, author of the Bitter Wine Trilogy, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. And no, I can't get you Billy Bob's autograph. Yeah, and that was the opera fight. Son Lux is the composer for that, the band that is, and features Mitski and David Byrne from the soundtrack of Everything Everywhere All at Once. Wow, what a film. Uh, it's, it's just it's gobstopping, actually. <laughs> I don't often get that because, as you know, I'm one of those people who will just go for yonks if a microphone is placed in front of them, but... After watching this film, I'm sitting there with my mouth just dropped onto the floor. Let's go with some structure to begin with. All right, it is ostensibly set in a laundromat, which is owned by Evelyn Wang and her husband, Waymond. Now, they're not doing too well. They're kind of failing. They... 
are trying to get a second laundry up and running in order to do that, to extend their business licence, they need to be audited by the Internal Revenue Service, which is never a good thing and a particularly complicated thing because, well, you know, Evelyn kind of mistakes some of her hobby expenses because she's got a few of them as business expenses, mistakes or deliberately tries to pass them off as that. Never really go into that too much. Other themes are occurring at the same time as she's trying to do this, as uh, he and her, he, she and her husband... Well, her husband, Wayman, is trying to serve divorce papers upon her, for one thing, and I know that would be normally a cliché that I would run a mile from, but in this case I'll sort of give it a pass because it's quite well integrated into the film. There's also the fact that running the actual laundromat is quite complex. Uh, they've got some issues over storage of clothing, for example, and they actually do lean into that quite a bit. It's mostly background, but every now and then you get, you stop and you th- think, all right, okay, it's the cliche for the Chinese laundry in terms of the stereotype. I get all that. At least they are doing the procedural some kind of justice for that. Here. But that's all kind of in the background, but you do notice it as you go along. Uh, along with the family issues, well, their daughter, Joy, is involved in a lesbian relationship and they're wondering how to present this to their father, the newly arrived Gong Gong, which is, you know, basically grandfather, who's come in from China for a Chinese New Year celebration. And they're a bit worried that he being a traditional kind of fella, that it might not sort of slide past him too well. Now, alongside of that, there's also the procedural that will come into play when the multiverse aspect of this film kicks off. You know, the idea that uh, her character will be able to see other aspects of herself along roads not taken in her life, which can actually be quite seductive to look at. You're thinking, oh, the grass is always greener in the other dimension, (laughs) or is it? Well, actually, I thought that one of the things that endeared this film to me was that all of these elements are kept in play everywhere all at once, simultaneously, and it's a bit of a whirlwind. And so they're interlocking whirlwinds that every now and then come together into quiet pauses. And, you know, I actually felt like the film was choreographed like martial arts. Okay, martial arts feature extensively in this film. But you know how you'll get the fight scene and it'll either start or end in a particular pose? I felt that they were doing that across all of the different levels of the film, like the family issues would go crashing around and then pause in a moment as we took it all on board or or realised that we'd had a a bit of a summation happening in that particular sequence. So, you know, I feel like they've got a very synergistic sort of flow to the film that reflects the the action and the things that are not quite so (laughs) punchy, kicky, slappy as the film maintains its incredible pace throughout. All right, so I'll give you another track here and this is Life featuring Mitski and David Byrne from The Everything... Everywhere, all at once. Soundtrack album.
Hi, I'm Andrea Thompson, and I play Talia Winters, resident commercial telepath on Babylon 5. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that that was This Is A Life from the soundtrack of the incredible film Everything, Everywhere, At Once, which I'm sure Michael Moorcock probably had in mind in the 1960s, in the psychedelic 60s, when he coined the term multiverse in one of his books. Now, this film stars Michelle Yeoh. Boy, does it. So many different variant versions of her that she would give Tom Hiddleston a run for his money. And in fact, in some cases, I feel like she's channeling her Marvel Universe characters from Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and Shang-Chi, The Legend of the Ten Rings. But otherwise, she is displaying so many sides to her actorial talents that this feels very much like an homage or a tribute to Michelle Yeoh. And about time, too. She's been in, well, pretty much everything when you think about it. And her physicality is here as well, of course, because there's lots of martial arts in this film. And you'll find that there are references to other films that uh, she has been involved in where she's had to kick butt because the choreographers are big fans of hers. Uh, that's Annie and Brian Lee. Uh, they 
have seen so many of the films that she's been in. They've obviously also riffed off of Bruce Lee movies and Jackie Chan ones for this. And you can pick out specific Easter eggs from your favourite Waxia movie in this film. Plus so much inventive stuff in terms of the fighting. Uh, (laughs) So many different forms of kung fu that I have never heard of before. Although actually I think the uh, using the bum bag fu or uh, fanny pack fu, that's very much been used before, but uh, quite engagingly here. Pinky fu is also a thing. Furry fu, and I'll leave that to the imagination. And there is a new form in this, the infamous trophy fu that I really cannot describe its best scene, but perhaps not by people with uh, tender sensitivities or too young. You might want to um, work on that aspect first if you're uh, looking at this film. (laughs) So many nods to other films. Actually, um, uh, Andy uh, Lee was um, also in uh, the uh, film that we were talking about um, Recently, uh, the Shang-Chi film, uh, he was one of the martial arts trainers in that and actually appeared as the character of Deaf Dealer in that too. So they also get roles, the, the stunt choreographers also get roles in this film. They're playing some of the alpha jumpers from different parts of the multiverse. I thought the multiversal procedure was excellent and so hyperkinetic that it could be confusing, but I managed to keep up with it. Uh, I think it actually did help that we've seen all of that Marvel multiverse stuff before this one. In fact, like I said, this one you could easily just be a channel change away from a Marvel film. But also with that maniacal pace of Kung Fu Hustle. And it's a lot of fun too, this film. So if you're a, a person who likes your science fiction with a comedic taste, this is the film for you. you also find the soundtracks quite excellent with... Son Lux doing the massive amount of music for this, but they've also collaborated with Randy Newman, who has a, <laughs> an uncredited role in this. And here's Randy Newman featured in a song called Now We're Cooking from the film Everything Everywhere All at Once. Triple R. <laughs> Randy Newman there from the soundtrack of Everything Everywhere at Once. I won't explain that further. Perhaps it's inexplicable. You'll see when you watch the film. Uh, We've been gushing over the tour de force performance of Michelle Yeoh in this film as Evelyn Wang, the, the, uh, the the laundry owner in the film. Stephanie Sue is playing Joy Wang, his her daughter, and she's very solid in this and has a great chemistry with Michelle, which is what's required for this film. Uh, Ki Huai Quan is playing Waymond Wang, her husband, which is to say Evelyn's husband, and we know him as Short Round from Temple of Doom and Data in the Goonies uh, from a show called Head of the Class in the 1990s, and also later on as a stunt choreographer for X-Men and The One, and he was also assistant director for Wong Kar Wai's 2046. James Hong, the ubiquitous James Hong, plays Gong Gong, the grandfather in this. 
Uh, we, we have been recently been talking about him in context of his vocal performance in Turning Red. And we could go on in that because James Hong, uh, along with Key Luke, is one of the most common Asian faces in American cinema and TV. Now, speaking of somebody who we've seen before, Jamie Lee Curtis is outstanding playing the IRS inspector in this in a role that could easily have been just a thankless um, lieutenant bot to a boss fight character, but she's so much more than that in this one. So also look out for Li Jing, a playing a Kung Fu master. No wonder she actually is a world champion Wushu master. So... This film has everything for me. I thoroughly recommend it. It is a bit naughty in places, so maybe not for the the two little ones, although some of the naughtiness they'd probably just laugh at, I would imagine. But, you know, I'll give you a warning there in case you might might want to study some aspects of that for yourself before subjecting the eyes of children to everything, everywhere, all at once. And I think I got away with that without actually stuffing up the title. But then again, I don't know. Probably there's a, an alternate universe version of me who didn't. Now, this film was originally written for uh, Jackie Chan and I think um, Aquafina was going to play the daughter, Joy. But, you know, all sorts of things changed along the way. And I think actually it, I can imagine an alternate universe of this one being quite successful with those actors uh, and also at the same time I think it really rocks with Michelle Yeoh in the main role. Just a great film and one that will have your leave your head spinning but in a really good way and not like where you've been hit in the head with a spin kick. And that's about it for Zero G for today. We'll leave you with a track called Sucked Into a Bagel by Son Lux featuring, featuring uh, the, the actress who plays Joy Stephanie Sue in this until next week, thank you to our podcaster, Kayla Larson, our co-host, Megan McHugh, Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour, and nothing matters, so enjoy your bagel. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.